Welcome to the Generations Church podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We hope this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. In a moment, I'm going to have you read from 1 Kings chapter 18. So if you want to get your Bibles, your devices, if you don't have it, that's fine. We'll be uh, uh, putting it on the screen. Also, if you've missed any of these services or part of the series, you can catch up on iTunes. You can catch up on our YouTube channel, Facebook page, however you want to do that. We also, if you're a version person, we provide notes for that. On the back of our bulletin, we have fill-in-the-blank notes, so if that kind of kind of helps you. So we're uh, in the fourth part of a series on Elijah, prophet of fire, man of despair. Uh, the, uh, our theme verse, and it's really important today, it says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. So we started, we started uh, a few weeks ago talking about Elijah. Now, Elijah lived about 900 years before Jesus, if you were, follow the chronology of time. He lived about 900 years before the time of Jesus. And Elijah was introduced into this story under the most wicked king and one of the most wicked men that had ever lived. The Bible says that. His name was Ahab. He's one of the most wicked kings that, that had ever lived, and we see Elijah kind of surface into this particular story. So Elijah, he goes up to Ahab, the king, and he said, it is not going to rain until I say that it's going to rain, and then he left. God sent him uh, to a brook in Gilead and said, just stay right here. I'm going to provide for you even in the midst of this drought. So the brook you know, came every day with, with water. The ravens came in the morning with food in the morning, food in the evening. And for a while, that's how, you know, kind of he was taken care of. Finally, the effects of the drought, you know, hit. That brook dried up, and God had an unusual place for him. He said, I want you to go to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath was about 100 miles away, and it was in the middle of one of the most evil uh, countries called Sidon. It, uh, it had... You know, it was run over with Baalism, Baal worship, idol worship, worshiping calves, sacrificing children. It was a terrible place. And the Lord sent him right in the middle of that because there was a widow that needed the prophet. So he goes and the widow, if you remember the story, he's, uh, God's going to provide for him through this widow. But the widow only has a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. And we see God do a miracle because through that little bit of oil, a little bit of flour, it sustained the prophet and also the widow and her son. Great story. Well, after a season of time, the widow's son gets sick and he dies. And do you remember the story? You know, Elijah took the son and he laid upon him. And one time he prayed over him. Second time he prayed over him. Nothing. Third time he prayed over him. The first biblical resurrection occurred and the widow got her son back. Now we see in the story, Elijah, the Lord sending Elijah back to Ahab. It's been almost three years that this drought has been going. 
And he, he tells Ahab, listen, when Ahab sees him, and we saw it last week, Ahab says, man, you're the troubler of Israel. He said, no, it's not me. It's your sin and iniquity that has brought this drought upon, upon Israel. And here's where we pick the story up, 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 19. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asheroth who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word, uh, so Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So this is a defining moment for Elijah. Matter of fact, it's probably the story that he's most well known for. And even if you go to Mount Carmel today, there is a statue uh, on Mount Carmel that just, you know, that reminds this is the place that this biblical occurrence took place. So a couple of things when we see this. Number one, look at the number of prophets of Baal, 850. So it shows you that in a short amount of time, Baalism and Baal worship had really, had really flourished in this particular land. And these prophets were so important to Ahab and Jezebel that they chose, even in a time of drought, to take food and water from their particular table and take care of, of these particular prophets. So he asked them the question, how long will you waver between two opinions? Now it's time to choose. you got to choose. You can't put it off anymore. you got to make a choice. Today's the day you got to choose. And you know that happens. There's a time that you got to make a decision. One way or the other, you got to decide. In our country in the last couple of weeks, we've had to make a choice. And I don't know which side that you fell on, but we've had to choose. So who chose Popeyes? Well, they ran out. No wonder. If you live in Tallahassee, you got to choose. You got to choose. You got to make a choice. You can't stay here and just waver and go go back and forth between the between the teams. But there is a third option up here if you can't decide. Yeah. That's right. I think that's a good choice and everybody will just be happy with that one. Don't, don't be rude. We got visitors here. <laughs> Michael Jordan in his book, Driven From Within, there's a story that he tells that he visited the, uh, the president of the Charlotte Hornets in his home, Fred Whitfield. And he goes to his house for dinner and he says, Fred, hey, I forgot to bring a jacket. Can I go? To, and borrow a jacket. Fred said, go down the hall. My closet's to the right. Get out whatever you need. <clears throat> not, a, not a problem. So after a moment, Michael Jordan comes back, and he's got a handful of clothes. I mean a handful. And he goes back, puts it on the couch. He goes back to the closet, gets another handful of clothes, pants, 
coats, everything, puts it on the puts it on the couch, pulls out his knife, and starts ripping up all of Fred's clothes. When he gets through, he takes the clothes to the dumpster. Now, why? Because Fred's closet was filled with Puma attire. All right? Now, we all know Michael has made a dollar or two off Nike. All right? So he comes back in from the dumpster and he says, Fred, I want to tell you something. You know, if, if call my you know, Nike representative tomorrow and we'll replace all of those clothes. But with me, you can't sit on the fence. You got to make a choice. Okay? Now, I just want to tell you, you know, from time to time, we got to make a choice. And here in, on, this, on Mount Carmel, we see the prophets of Baal that have been gathered, but we also see the invitation of all the people of Israel to come as well. So you've got all these people here, got, got these prophets of Baal, and he's asking, why are, are you wavering between these two opinions? Make a decision. You've got to do something. You cannot have a divided allegiance any longer. And the people, the response from the people was that they were silent. You see, they had had many generations of service to God through oral traditions. They probably remembered the story of their, of their fathers, how God reigned in Israel, but also their present day experience was one of Baalism. Now, can I just, can I just say to you today, God brings them to a point of decision. God brings them to a point of decision, and God will bring you to a point of decision as well. There'll be a time in your life, if you're kind of back and forth, the Lord will go, all right, today's the day. What, what's it going to be? Can I just say this morning, He's not interested in an open relationship with you. He's not. You know, open relationship, you're married, but you're going to be open to other relationships. He's not interested you know, he's not interested in that. The Bible uses the term, we, we don't use it much, but the Bible uses the term lukewarm. Lukewarm, kind of in between. So if you've got water that's lukewarm, it's, it's not really hot enough to wash dishes. It's not really cool enough to drink. So there's just not, you know, there's just not really anything that you can do with that. Here's what Jesus himself said about being lukewarm. He said, I know your deeds, that you were neither hot, neither cold, nor hot. I wish you were either one of the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now that's the word of the Lord. He said he would rather you be cold than to be lukewarm. So being lukewarm is not an outright rejection of God, but it shows the divided heart between God and other things. Lukewarm is not 100% turning, uh, turning our back to God, but it's, we've got a little bit of the Lord, we've got a little bit, you know, got a little bit of the world. You are not committing any great sin, but you're not doing anything great for God either. You come to church from time to time and you feel good about that, but yet your life is kind of gripped by, by other sins, you know? So, you know, 
no one can serve two masters is what Jesus said. He said, you got to choose. Jesus said, you got to choose God or mammon. you got to choose one or the other. So sometimes if, if we talk about being lukewarm, it's not that we've rejected God, but it's just that we have minimized His role in our life and our perception of God is this. He's my Sunday God. He's my crisis God. He's my... Get myself out of a jam, God. That's the way some people view it, and that is very lukewarm. It's just like those standing there in the hill that Elijah is confronting. Why are you back and forth? You got you gotta you gotta make a you gotta make a choice. Joshua is the first one, kind of through the passage that said to crowds, man, you gotta make a choice. He said, you got to choose this day who you are going to serve. And then he answered personally, and he said, As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. So I want to say, God is bringing you to a point of decision. He's doing you a great favor to make you, you know, kind of wake up from being lukewarm in your approach to God to choose one way or the other. God, this morning, He is in this moment. Make a decision today, one way or the other. But I want to encourage you this morning. Make that decision for Jesus. You'll never regret that. Take up the cross of Jesus Follow Him. I promise you, in this life and the life to come, you'll never regret that decision. You'll never regret it. So Elijah's standing there with the prophets of Baal. He's being watched by the citizens of Israel. Now, this is an interesting choice of location. He says this to Ahab in Samaria. But he tells them, let's meet at Mount Carmel. So you see it's, a, it's, it's over a day's journey by foot. All right? So, and then once you get there, you know, the final part of that is Mount Carmel is 15 to 1,600 feet high. So you take that day journey, 7, 10 miles in a very dry climate. And then the last part of that is going uphill, but Mount Carmel is a, is a really unusual location, but I think it's very strategic to make a point because Mount Carmel, if you look where it's located, to the north is Sidon. It's Zarephath. It's that whole area of Baal worship. To the south is Israel. God sends them right on the brink. These people that were wavering back and forth, God sends them almost right to the border of Sidon, of, the, of, of Baal worship fame and, uh, and Israel of, you know, that had, had this relationship with the Lord. So they're in this very interesting location. So here's what he says. He says to the prophets of Baal, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take two bulls and we're going to cut them up. We're going to place them on wood. Here's the rules. Here's what we're going to do. And then we're both going to pray to our God. And the God that answers by fire, he will be the God. He will be, 
He will be the Lord. We'll all acknowledge that. And the people came and they said, that sounds good. We'll do that. So he says to the prophets of Baal, you go first. So they cut the bull up. They place it and dress it in somewhere 8 or 9 o'clock. They start their prayer. They start their you know, their songs, their chants, whatever they're doing. And, you know, probably from 8, 9 o'clock until about midday, man, there was nothing. They were just kind of shouting and chanting. And then about, about noon, Elijah starts to taunt them a little bit. He says, hey, has your God gone for a trip? Is he asleep? Let me tell you something. You don't need to taunt your enemy unless you're sure of victory, Right? You can eat a lot of words that way, but he's just kind of kind of making fun of them a little bit. And man, that just kind of makes them mad and they, they, they get more intense. You know, uh, one, one writer said that they probably it was the custom for all of them to circle that altar. So if you can imagine 850, they're kind of circling the, the altar. And the, as the day went on, they got more feverishly intense and they begin to pull out their knives and swords and they begin to cut themselves where blood begin to flow. They begin to prophesy frantically uh, to this God. But at the time of the evening sacrifice, the Bible says, so they go all day doing this. It says there was no response, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Okay, so then it's Elijah's turn. They've had their opportunity. They've had their eight hours. But before he prays, he does something that's really interesting to me. Let's look at that, 1 Kings 18 and 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. Brings them all around, all those bystanders. Brings them close by. Come here to me. And they came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each tribes, one, one, of, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar at the, in the name of the Lord. Hmm. So before he prays this prayer, he comes across in, in this particular area, wherever they're having this dispute, he comes across an old altar, an old New Testament altar that they had built. Probably it had been pushed, it had been pushed over. You know, they built it just with stones and, and rocks. It probably had been pushed over and it had weeds and grass that had grown over that. And he, before he, he, he prays, he comes back and he takes those rocks out and he pulls them apart and he rebuilds this altar intentionally using those stones uh, intentionally as, the, as, the, as the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel and he rededicates this altar, because an altar in the Old Testament is a place of sacrifice or memorial, and it represents a sacred encounter with the living God. That's what they 
did in the Old Testament, if there was a sacrifice or a time of worship, and you've read it before, they built an altar to memorialize that, or maybe God did something fantastic in their life, and they would build an altar to memorialize that. So they made geographical landmarks based on spiritual experiences, and these altars were important uh, reminders of what God you know, what God had done, and also it was a testimony to the individual of what God had done, but also as people traveled and they would go by, they would ask the question, what is this altar? What does it represent? It was a testimony to others as well. So some reason before this big encounter, uh, Elijah thought it was necessary to take some time and rebuild an altar. wonder... Wonder why, wonder why he did that. Can I just say something to you this morning? There's some of you this morning, you need to rebuild some altars in your life. You need to rebuild some altars in your life. Which means, at some point, there was a relationship with God. At some point, you know, you've had an experience with the Lord and God's done something in your life where you just knew that there was a living God. You just knew beyond a, a shadow of a doubt that there was a, a God in heaven. And in your mind, you've got that experience in your mind. But for whatever reason, whatever happened, maybe, maybe, maybe something happened in your life that you didn't understand or you got hurt or you just walked away from the Lord or most of the time... It's just people drift. They don't necessarily turn their back on God, but they just kind of drift over the period of time. And you look back now, man, and you've got altars that are turned over and weeds that have overgrown. And, and man, that experience that you had a long time ago, it's in your history and it's in your past and you are not living in a way today that is consistent with the altar that you built many, many years ago. I want to tell you something this morning. It's never too late to rebuild an altar. It's never too late to rebuild an altar. Thomas Carlyle, he was an author back in the 1700s and his publisher said, I want you to write the story of the, the beginning of the French Revolution, okay? So he, he does it. Now, it's a different world because you didn't have word processors. You didn't have, you know, you couldn't save things. So he starts writing. He starts writing the story of the French Revolution, okay? It takes him weeks and months, 800 pages handwritten, all right? 800 pages. He takes it, walks over to the publisher's house. The publisher's not home. He gives it to the lady in the, you know, that was working there. This is for the publisher. Tell him it's, it's from me, and he goes home. The lady takes it, puts it to the side, and forgets about it. And over a period of time, she begins to use the paper as kindling in the fireplace. And after a couple weeks, the whole work is gone. And the publisher had to go tell him, hey, I'm sorry, but that whole work 
is gone. Well, he went into a depression. The publisher said, just write it again. Just, just write it again. But he, he just went, there's just no way to redo that. There's no way to rebuild that. There's no way to reconstruct there's no way to reconstruct that. And he went into a, you know, he went into a depression and just was like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I mean, weeks and months of his life, no notes, no backup, no hard drive, no copy, no save, no cloud. It's gone. Finally, he just said, you know, you know, I, I got to push through this. <laughs> I just got to push through this. And he just picked up the pen one day. And he just started writing again. Page after page. Page one. You got 800 to go. But he picked up the pen and he just started writing again. Page two. There's a lot of work. I got a long way to go. But this thing's never going to happen. But I just don't start back again. Can I just tell you this morning, you look at your life and you go, man, it's been so long, I've done so much, there is just no way I could ever work myself back to God's grace and God's favor. And I say to you this morning, you are wrong. It takes one decision on one day that I may have done some things in my past, but I'm going to start today turning my life back around, rebuilding that altar. And when the sun comes up tomorrow, I'm going to try one more day. And on Tuesday, I'm going to try one more day. I want to tell you this morning, if if you are ashamed of the altars that have fallen in your life, do not be ashamed. God will help you rebuild those. He wants you to rebuild those. And if you think what God did at that original altar experience was great, you wait till the next altar that's built. I want to tell you something. The Lord doesn't judge you. If you go, man, I've screwed my life up. I knew better. I was the one down here. I was the one that used to be in the ministry. I used to, I used to do this. The Lord, the Lord doesn't point his finger at you. It's like, you know, it's like if, if you're driving and you see a you see a car that's you see a car that's wrecked and you rush over to it to help. And there's a family on the inside, but when you get there, you smell alcohol. Do you know what? In that moment. You don't judge, do you? We're just trying to help that family. Can I just tell you something this morning? That the Lord may look at an altar that's overrun and pushed down, but He doesn't come with judgment this morning going, I told you so. He comes with His hand outstretched and said, let me help you back to the grace of God. He doesn't judge you. He's not here to throw a stone it's you if you started well and an altar is overrun and it's pushed down. He's not there to cast a stone. Listen, he's not in the stone throwing business. He's in the forgiving and the grace business. If you'll give him that opportunity, come back home. So rebuilding the altar, it involves confession that you need God in your life. I mean, some of you, you may have failed. You feel, you feel embarrassed. You feel ashamed sometimes to go to church. A, a, a broken down altar keeps you from pressing through in worship. 
because you're always reminded kind of what I used to be and what I, what I used to do, and it's very hard for you to kind of, kind of push through. But can I tell you, you don't have to worry about that. If you want to rebuild that altar, we'll rebuild it. And it starts with confession, just going, hey, God, I just need you in my life. I took my hand off the, you know, I put my hands on the wheel. I started making my own decisions, started doing my own thing. You want to rebuild an altar, it just starts with a confession that you need God. It starts with a little repentance as well. Hey, Lord, there were some things that I let in my life that kind of got me off track. But, Lord, I want to rebuild a brand new altar. And today I'm going to do my best to kind of, to kind of turn away from what drew me away from you. To start with, we call it repentance. And the next part of that is just a, a willingness to love and serve Jesus. All right? A willingness to love and serve Jesus. Now, one sentence, one word of that sentence talks about being perfect. You know, some people think I can never do it. I could never live it. So they never, they never give it a try. I'm just telling you, I, that's, not, that's not part of the equation. You just, you, you just confess him. You just repent. You just love him and serve him. You let the Lord work the rest of that out. All right? He wants to rebuild some altars in some of your lives. Some of you, your life is straight along way from what you ever wanted it to be. But I'm just telling you, there might be an old altar in your past. But do you know what? There can be a brand new altar. An altar meant sacrifice and memorial of an experience, an unusual experience that God gave. And God can do something brand new. If you thought that old altar was good, wait till you see chapter 2 of that altar when it's built in your life. So Elijah, Elijah, it's his turn now. It's his turn. They rebuild the altar. Then everybody's watching. So he digs a trench around the bull. And he tells them, they were close to the Mediterranean. He tells them, hey, there are four jars. I want you to go down to the Mediterranean. I want you to fill them up with water and bring them back up here. Okay? And they do. Four jars. They pour it all over the bull, all over the wood. It goes in the trench. Hey, I want you to do this again. They go back down the hill, get the jars, fill it back up, pour it out. He said, hey, let's do that one more time. It's easy for him. He's not the one going up and down the hill in the drought. There's a sermon somewhere about those guys. I just couldn't find it. They go back down, pours, pours the water, pours the water over. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And the scripture says, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, are, that you Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So there's no pleading, there's no screaming, there's no, you know, theological, you know, great theology through that. He's just praying. Can I remind you at the beginning, our theme scripture says Elijah was a person just like you and I when he prayed this prayer, okay? Except for the fact that Elijah had been through this kind of intense crucible before of prayer. Before he goes to Ahab, 
and speaks as he's being cared for by the brook, as he goes to the widow, he's concerned about uh, sustenance, as he's praying with great faith over the widow's son. Can I just say in this moment, he's not a prayer rookie. He's not a rookie in this moment. I have a question for you today. Do you pray? Do you pray? Don't tell me about your prayer books that you've read or your prayer devotions or that you believe in the power of prayer. I'm asking you, do you pray? Have you spent 10 minutes this week not driving, not vacuuming, alone in a room, 10 minutes, where you have just opened your heart up to God in prayer. Do you pray? Do you pray? People say, why don't we see things like we used to see in the Bible? And one of my first answers is, because I don't think we pray like the people of the Bible. Do you pray? We believe in the theology of prayer. But have you taken 10 minutes and sat in a room alone this week and prayed? What, what about last week? 10 minutes that you pushed everything aside, that you got in what Jesus called the closet of prayer. Ten minutes. Have you done it? Not do you believe in prayer, but do you pray is my question. Now listen, we binge watch. We binge watch series after series, hour after hour, you know, back to back. We binge watch, but do we pray? Have you taken 10 minutes and put everything aside with maybe one song of worship music where you focused on your relationship with God? We binge watch well, but I don't know how well we pray. What about we go to the gym with great regularity? People never miss. They are disciplined to the gym. But I want to say, do you pray? Is your body fit like it should be, but there's spiritual decay in your life? Do you pray? Do you pray? Have you taken 10 minutes, at least 10 minutes, over the last few weeks, and you kind of cleared the schedule, at least 10 minutes, where you spent some time with the Lord? Do you pray? Can I tell you, in this moment, when Elijah prays, that's why James reminds us, he is a person just like us. But I just want to say, in this moment of this prayer that he's praying, he's not a prayer rookie. His, his voice that is echoing off the quarters of heaven, his voice is no stranger to God. He is no stranger in the presence of God. When he prays, he prays with an unusual power and an unusual faith because he has not been a stranger in the closet of prayer. And he prays. One man said, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. We don't pray to inform God as if he was ignorant of events or of what you are thinking or feeling. Instead, we pray, your will be done, so that in our companionship with him as prayerful people, we really do begin to become radically different our whole being begins to be shaped by the life and spirit of prayer. 
Do you pray? Do you pray? Do you have regular time that you shut everything off? You shut the door, you turn off the phone, and you spend with the God of heaven. Do you pray? Do you pray? We believe in prayer. We go to Bible studies on prayer. That is not my question. Do you pray? Do you pray? He says that simple prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones, the soil also licked up the water in the trench all around. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried. The Lord, He is God. Look at their response. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah, well, I'll stop there. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Let's walk through that. Brent, worship team, you guys can come. The fire of God, He answered. He answered with fire. Can I just say to you this morning, if your back's against the wall, You've got an issue in your life. You need a miracle, whatever. Can I just mention to you this morning of Jeremiah's declaration. He said, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth with your outstretched hand. You've made the heavens and the earth with your outstretched hands. And he says, because I believe that, he makes another declaration. There is nothing too hard for you. There's nothing too hard for you. Can I say to you today, God's promise to us in every situation, whatever you may face today, there is nothing too hard for God. Would you give Him praise this morning? Give Him praise. There's nothing too hard for God. The people saw the fire fall. They fell on their face. The Lord, He is the God. In the midst of all of that Baal worship, all that empty stuff, all of that golden calf sacrificing children, all that was going on in the temple, the Lord, He is the God. You know, these people were desperate. Years of drought, living on the brink of death, living under the experience of, of Baalism, and they were hungry. They were looking for God's hand. They were looking for, they were looking for the hand of God. So what do you need from God today? What are you desperate for? These people were just desperate. They don't know how much longer they've got to make it. What are you just desperate for in your life? But can I just say something to you this morning? Whatever miracle you may need, whatever big thing it is that you, that you need in your life, what the Lord did on Mount Calvary, I mean, Mount Carmel was great, but what he did on Mount Calvary was simply amazing. That's the greatest miracle, is the miracle of the heart, the transformation of the heart.
you're here today, I think there's several ways maybe that God can speak to you today. Maybe you've been kind of back and forth in your walk with the Lord. You're kind of, you know, just, man, he just says, make make a decision. Make a decision today. Maybe you're undecided in your walk. Can I just say, man, today can be your day that you put aside, you know, any kind of wavering, kind of any kind of back and forth. I mean, we just come back and go, all right, today's the day. Today's the day. I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve God. It's what those people of Israel did. Today's the day. The Lord, He is the God. Or maybe you need to rebuild some altars. Maybe you've kind of strayed away, kind of walked away. You got some memories of some things that God did in your past, but that was a long time ago. You're a little embarrassed. You don't have to be. I'm just telling you, we can start again rebuilding altars and if you think what he did in the past was great he's got something unbelievable in store for you you may be here this morning you've got a mountain in your life you've got an obstacle today we want to pray he's the God of miracles he's the God of miracles we've seen that in these in these passages and I just want to remind you there's nothing too hard for God there's nothing too hard for God Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.